We'll be reading the first 17 verses of Amos chapter 5. But before we read God's word, let's ask God for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you for your word. For in it you have spoken to your people, and you continue to speak to us this morning. Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, that we might hear what you have set before us. Let the cares and concerns of this world fade away, and may the spirit direct us more and more to Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says to the, the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter, enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. With no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into mourning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate. And they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor... And take grain taxes from him. Though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gates. Therefore the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. Congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we all like to be comfortable, don't we? I mean, who doesn't want that? You get home from work, you change out of your clothes, you settle down into your favorite chair, 
You get comfortable. But then imagine that suddenly you see the TV screaming out a warning that there's a tornado coming. There's warnings in counties all around you. A funnel cloud has been spotted and it's heading right in your direction. You hear the sirens in the distance. You see the wind slapping branches against your windows. What do you do in that moment? You're no longer comfortable, are you? No, you leave that cushy comfort of your chair behind and you are running for the storm shelter. You leave, it, you leave that cushy comfort behind and you find the comfort that you can find in the four cement walls of your basement. You see, we all like to be comfortable, but it's important to take comfort in the right things. In our text this morning, we find a people who had taken comfort in the wrong things. We find a people who had grown comfortable in their sin, who had settled down into a cushy chair with armrests of idolatry and injustice. God has been pointing out their sin and promising judgment for the last three chapters in Amos 2, 3, and 4, but these people haven't paid attention. They've remained content in what they've been doing. They've remained comfortable. And so when we get to our passage, Amos gives these people the warning that they need. He proclaims a very serious and a very simple message that God calls the comfortable to repent. This is the theme of Amos 5, 1 through 17, and it's what we'll be focusing on this morning, that God calls the comfortable to repent. And this repentance requires three things. First of all, repentance requires acknowledging the coming judgment. Second, repentance requires turning from sin. And third, repentance requires turning to the Lord. Now, first of all, repentance requires acknowledging the coming judgment. Because if you're going to get out of the way of a tornado, you first of all need to acknowledge that it's coming. Likewise, if Israel was going to be saved from God's coming wrath, they had to acknowledge that it was coming. But until Amos' warning, these people were blind to it. They were blind to it because they were so comfortable. This was difficult for Amos' audience to believe because when they looked around, things were going great. You see, Amos prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. And during his reign, life in Israel was good. Under him, the nation expanded its boundaries to the largest they've been since the time of Solomon. And with, those expan- with that expansion led to more control over all the trade routes that were coming through their nation. And so they had a lot of wealth flowing in. And when a nation has an abundance of wealth, when they don't need to scrounge for their meals when they don't need to fight over scraps, then life is good, at least from a material standpoint. And when life is comfortable, when life is good, the temptation arises to only look at life from a material standpoint. The physical world, that which we can feel and touch and look at, becomes the only care and concern, and such was the case with the nation of Israel, who were blinded to their true condition. They were lulled into complacency by their satiated state. They had entered something like a Thanksgiving coma where having all of your physical needs met, you just sort of relax and zone out. Now, if Israel had all of their needs met, how much more do we? Right? If Israel, an ancient agrarian society, were comfortable in what they had, how much more are we? 
We live in a time of national prosperity where things are going extremely well for us. In fact, if we consider our living standards to any point in the past, even in the last century, we have such a comfortable life. We have grocery stores full of all kinds of food. We have transportation that can take us anywhere in the world in just a matter of days. We, have, we can have virtually anything we want delivered to our doorstep, sometimes most often within two days. We have phones in our pocket that give us all kinds of communication, all kinds of entertainment, all kinds of information. We live extremely comfortable lives. And that makes it easy for us to ignore the fact that judgment is coming. Just like Israel, we can get so caught up in the here and now that we're blind to it. We we lose sight of the fact that judgment is coming. So we need to be woken up. We need to acknowledge the coming judgment, just like Israel. And so that's what Amos does in our passage. Like a jolt of electricity, he shocks Israel awake. And he makes them see their true situation by opening their eyes to these truths they had been ignoring. And he does this by means of a lamentation. Verses 1 and 2, he calls his audience to hear his words of lamentation. Fallen, no more to rise as the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with no one to raise her up. Wait, what? Israel is the one who's fallen? We just said they were doing great. And yet Amos here says they're fallen, they're they're destroyed. Do you feel what a shock that would be? Hearing that would be like if you're sitting in your chair with the sirens blaring and the wind howling outside and then on the TV you hear a breaking news bulletin. We regret to inform you that this tornado has already claimed one victim. And then you hear your name. Whoa. That'd be a shock. That'd be a shock to the system and it's meant to be. Because while everything looks great on the outside... Israel's true condition was one of hopelessness. They're on death row, as it were. They are a dead nation walking. In verse 2, this proclamation is in the present tense. The virgin Israel has fallen, implying that there is no doubt. It is absolutely certain that Israel will fall, never to rise again. And in verse 17, in verses 16 and 17, at the end of our passage, there's a future aspect There shall be wailing in the streets and in the vineyards. And that future aspect acknowledges that it still is in the future. Their prophecy, they haven't happened yet. But these horrific events are sure to happen. And indeed, these events are horrific. There will be military defeat, as described in verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left. They go out to war, and these people are going to lose. There's a remnant left, but this is not meant to be a hopeful remnant. No, they're going to suffer catastrophic loss, 90% casualties. There's not much hope for a nation that suffers 90% casualties, that loses 90% of their fighting force. Have you ever tried to play chess with just a king and a pawn? Or kids at recess, have you ever tried to play soccer with just you and your buddy against everybody else? How's that going to go? It's not going to work very well at all. And for Israel either, they are going to get destroyed. 
And this destruction will result in intense mourning by the people. As we see in verses 16 and 17, there shall be wailing in the streets. And they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas. They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. And in all the vineyards, there shall be wailing. The good times will be turned into bad times. And this nation is going to be weeping everywhere. The squares, the streets, the highways, even the vineyards, those places symbolic of much joy. Instead, the joy is going to be removed from this people. And it's going to be replaced with grief and distress and anguish. But what will cause this drastic transformation? Why will Israel be filled with mourning instead of their present comfortable contentment? Well, the last half of verse 17 clues us in. For I will pass through you, says the Lord. This mourning that will come because of the judgment brought by the presence of the Lord. In the past, in previous times, when God's favor was on his people, he passed over them. Right? We remember Passover in the Exodus. God's judgment went over his people. Now, however, his judgment's going to pass right through them. This defeat, this wailing, it's all a horrific picture of the reality of the wrath of God upon the sin of the comfortable. But to see a clearer picture of the wrath of God poured out against sin, we need to look to the New Testament. For there we see that Jesus Christ on the cross he endured the wrath of God for the sin of man. He took our sin upon himself. And God poured out on his son his wrath, his judgment against sin. And the good news of the gospel is that if you put your faith in Christ, he has taken that judgment for you. You don't need to worry about it anymore. It has been dealt with. Your eternal salvation is not in doubt. But that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. No, our goal is still to please the Lord. Because as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And if this morning you aren't in Christ, if you are not a follower of Jesus, then friend, this picture of God's wrath, this destruction, this weeping that was promised to Israel so long ago, it's promised to you as well. Are you awake yet? Judgment is coming. And we need to acknowledge that fact. But repentance isn't characterized simply by knowing something. The comfortable are not called simply to acknowledge the coming judgment and leave it at that. You can't see that tornado coming and just stay in your comfy chair. No, repentance requires action. It, you have to do something. And that's our second point this morning, that repentance requires turning from sin. Israel in this passage was called specifically to turn from sin in relation to both God and man. In relation to God, their sin was idolatry. And in relation to man, their sin was injustice. And we're going to look at the idolatry first. We see that call to repent of idolatry in verses 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. 
Now, what do these three places mean? Beersheba, Gilgal, Bethel. Well, these three places had shrines where the people of Israel had been visiting to aid their worship of God. They were going to these three places instead of to the Jerusalem temple where they were supposed to. And they were doing that because these three places each had a unique place in the history of Israel. First, Beersheba was visited by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there, each were assured of God's presence. At Beersheba, Abimelech tells Abraham, God will be with you. And it's at Beersheba where God tells Isaac and Jacob, I myself will be with you. Again and again, Beersheba is the place where God has promised his presence to his people. I will be with you. I will be with you. Next, Gilgal reminded them of God's provision. At the beginning of Joshua, the people cross the Jordan River to begin the conquest of Canaan. They take the stones from the river. They build a monument there at Gilgal to remember what God did for them there. They remember God's provision when they look at Gilgal. And finally, Bethel reminded them again of God's presence. You remember Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 with that ladder and it ending with God promising many blessings to Jacob. It was there at Bethel that God's presence was with Jacob and that's why he named it that. For Bethel in the Hebrew means house of God. Beth, house, El, God, Bethel, house of God. When an Israelite thought of Bethel, they thought of God. However, it's also associated with that great sin of Israel, Jeroboam's golden calves. Where did he put them? He put them at Dan and Bethel. Israel sought God's presence there instead of at Jerusalem, and in doing so, it was a way to hold on to their heritage without falling back under Judah's reign. Now, these historical ties, they help us understand why these places were so attractive to the people of Israel. They were seeking God at these sites which had been so significant in their past. However, at this point, they were simply seeking the sites themselves. They weren't seeking the God whose presence and provision were promised there. They were engaging in idolatry because they had forgotten that worship was supposed to be about God. They lost sight of the object of their worship while they worshipped in a way that was comfortable to them. We know better, don't we? I mean, we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We know that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one can come to the Father except through him. And yet we too can get caught up in other things, so focused on making our worship comfortable for ourselves that we forget whom we're worshiping. We hold on to a certain hymnal. We try to recreate past experiences. Maybe a particular song that spoke to us. Maybe a retreat where we felt especially close to God. Or we can get so caught up in our doctrine, dotting our I's, crossing our T's, that we focus on our doctrine and we lose sight of God. And although all these things are good and helpful when they aid our worship of God, if they cause us to focus on the worship experience itself, then we're in danger of committing idolatry. If we place our doctrine above God, if we place our comfortable worship above God, then we sin and we're committing idolatry just like these Israelites. And if we do these things, we need to turn from the sin just like Israel was supposed to turn from their sin. But idolatry was not the only sin committed by Israel. They were not only sinning vertically in their relation to God, they were also sinning horizontally 
with their relationship to those around them. Israel was also practicing injustice. And you see this in verse 7, as well as verses 10 through 13. These verses display Israel's sin, particularly in relation to the poor among them. In this prosperous time, Israel was busy making themselves comfortable, building up their own wealth and security at the expense of the poor, instead of caring for the poor like they were supposed to do. Because Israel, as a nation, had been commanded by God to care for the poor. At the formation of the nation, God gave Israel laws by which they were to live as his covenant people. And repeated throughout these laws again and again is a concern for the poor. Exodus 23, 6, one example. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. In that verse, note the concern of God for both justice and the poor. These things were to concern God's people too. However, here in Amos 5, we see that Israel has forgotten the commands of the Lord and they've instead sought material gain for themselves by taking advantage of the poor. Verse 11 displays that exploitation. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and you take grain taxes from him, the poor were made to pay taxes to the rich at harvest time financing their lavish lifestyle. And because of the sin of injustice, we see again a call of judgment in verse 11. The rich are told that they will not dwell in the houses they've built, nor dwell, nor drink from the vineyards that they've planted. And that phrase might sound familiar to you because it's a haunting reminder of when Israel themselves were brought into the land. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses tells the people that in bringing them into the land, God is going to give them houses that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. The people of Canaan were removed from the land because of their sin. And now, generations later, we see the people of Israel about to be removed in that same way because of their sin of injustice. Now, it's important to notice that Israel did not only practice injustice, they also despised justice itself. Verse 7 shows us that attitude. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. They don't value righteousness. No, they dig holes in the ground. They try to bury it to get it as far away from them as possible. And this characteristic is further described in verse 10, which reads, They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Now, the city gate is where the city rulers met to deliberate cases. It was basically the courtroom of the ancient Middle East. It's where justice was handed out. And yet Israel hated those people who delivered justice. Verse 12 says that they afflicted the righteous. They took bribes and they denied justice to the needy. They were so focused on their own comfort that they didn't give two hoots about anybody else around them. In both their motives and their deeds, Israel was a people characterized by injustice. And what do you see when you look in the mirror? We know what we're supposed to see. We were created in the image of a just God. And so we were created to seek justice. We were meant to care for each other. You can still see that desire for justice everywhere in our world today. You see the concern for social justice, 
even among people who don't know anything about the Bible. That desire for justice, it's built into us. And yet because of the fall, that desire is often twisted and perverted. Just like Israel, we're often more focused on justice for ourselves than we are for our neighbor. We're more concerned with being comfortable than about treating our neighbor fairly. But as Christians, is that how we're supposed to be? As followers of Jesus, are we supposed to be more concerned with comfort for ourselves or with justice for our neighbor? We know the Sunday school answer. And if you don't, the answer is justice for our neighbor. Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, shows that concern for our neighbor that we're supposed to have. But we need to ask ourselves, what does this justice for our neighbor look like in real life? Well, this means getting out of our comfort zones, out of the comfort of our own lives and getting involved with other people, taking time out of our schedule to help people who are needy. This means checking in with the elderly widow next door or the single mother at work to see if we can help them. This means giving generously to charities whose concern is for the welfare of the poor. This means giving generously to the benevolent fund of this church. It means getting out of our comfort zone. We can't ignore the coworker who abuses the time clock. We can't ignore the landlord down the street who charges ridiculous prices for their buildings, taking advantage of those who can least afford it. We can't ignore the downtrodden and the oppressed in our land just because they run in different circles than we do or they speak a different language than we do. We can't cover our eyes or plug our ears when we hear about the horrible treatment of both the unborn and the immigrant or anyone else. We can't afford to be comfortable and complacent. No, we take our cue from Jesus himself who left the comfort of heaven And he entered into our situation, living among us, caring for us, dying for us. He cared about us that much. And we are to do likewise. Just as God loved us, so are we to love those around us. That's how we are called to live. And this is how Israel was called to live too. And they were failing. Therefore, Amos urged comfortable Israel to repent to get up out of that comfy chair of idolatry and injustice, to turn from their sin. And Amos urged them to turn from their sin to the Lord. This is our third point, that repentance requires turning to the Lord. The comfortable are not not called to turn blindly away from sin, willy-nilly, to get up out of that chair with no idea where they're going. No, the repentance has an end goal in sight, and it is God. Therefore, the prophecy doesn't simply recite Israel's sins, piling up their guilt without any hope. Rather, we hear the imperative seek three times. The prophet tells them where to go. In verses 4, 6, and 14, we see that word seek. And the first two times tells Israel to seek the Lord. And the third time tells Israel to seek good. And these are logically connected. Because when sinners repent from idolatry and injustice, they're turning their focus away from themselves and their own comfort to both God and their neighbor. Repentance repentance involves a complete transformation. And this only comes when the Lord is sought. And who is this Lord? 
Verses 8 through 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Verses 8 through 9 give us a description. He made the Pleiades in Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Here in these verses, God is described as the creator and the judge. <clears throat> he is the one to be sought. Not the security that Israel thought they were finding in their empty religion at Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Not the wealth that they were building up for themselves by treating their neighbor so poorly. They're to seek God. And seeking God will also result in seeking good. This is why in verse 14, Israel is commanded to seek good and not evil. And in verse 15, to hate evil and love good. If these people are desiring to seek God, then they will also seek what he desires. They will seek justice. They will seek righteousness. They will seek to end the oppression of the poor and to end the injustice that they've been handing out. And if they seek both God and good, then they may live. This hope is attached to each three of these imperatives. You see it in verse 4. Seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. And in verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may what? That you may live. Life in the Lord is the hope that is held out to the people of Israel. They will not have the false presence of God that they sought at those shrines, nor will they have the wrathful presence of God that is warned about through this entire passage. Rather, they, have, they will have the merciful presence of a loving God to whom they have turned. But we know the rest of the story. We know that the comfortable kingdom of Israel did not repent. They did not acknowledge the coming judgment until it was too late. They did not turn from the sin that ensnared them. And they did not turn to the Lord nor do what he commanded. No, they stayed in that comfy chair of their sin while the tornado of God's wrath obliterated them. Comfortable, virgin Israel fell in the bloom of her youth, never to rise again. The kingdom of Assyria conquered Israel and most were led away into captivity. Israel, who thought they had both the Lord's presence and his favor, they were deprived of both as they faded from existence and memory. However, this call still remains. The call for the comfortable to repent has been carried down through the ages and it has sounded forth from the pages of Amos here this morning. It's a call to examine our lives. And it's a call that's echoed in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And what's the answer? It's not our outward show of religion. It's not building up a comfortable life for ourselves. It's not our families or our homes. It's not having a full freezer or full cupboards. It's not the medicines we take or the doctors that we see. No, when Christians are asked what our only comfort is, we are to respond that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the only comfort that can be found in the face of God's wrath 
is Jesus. It's not the comfy chair of our sin, but it's the secure comfort of the storm shelter that's been provided. Jesus is the one we are to seek. He is the one in whom we will find life. And so this morning, wherever you find yourself, I urge you to examine your life. Root out those false comforts to which you are clinging. You need to come to Jesus, maybe some of you for the first time. You need to seek Him and live. Wherever you are, you need to acknowledge the coming judgment. You need to turn from your sin and you need to turn to the Lord through faith in Christ for He is the only place of true comfort in front of the impending wrath of God's, impending tornado of God's wrath against our sin. Don't seek the comforts and the luxuries of this life. Don't seek the bottle or the bedroom. Don't seek status at work or the popularity of friends. Don't seek more vacations or the endless distractions of Netflix. Don't seek to make your chair more comfortable. But seek Christ and live. Get out of your comfortable complacency. Repent from it. And how do you do it? You acknowledge the coming judgment. You turn from your sin and you turn to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. For in him we will find life. Comfortable Israel thought that they were secure in the faith of their past. And they were not afraid to practice idolatry and injustice. They ignored the call to repent. How will you respond? Along with the prophet Amos, I urge you this morning to seek the Lord and live. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would wake us up from our comfortable complacency. We pray that in your great mercy you would work in our hearts, that we might turn from our sin and turn to you in Christ. It's in him alone that we have hope. It's in him alone that we have life. And it's in his name alone that we pray. Amen.